Welcome to the Storytellers Live podcast, where everyday women share stories of God's love. I'm Robin, and I'm here with Katie and Lindy, and today we bring you another story from a live gathering. (laughs) You'll be able to tell that it's live because it was in my backyard in Vestavia. And there were geese honking. (laughs) We think we've removed most of it, but not all of it. So enjoy the sounds of nature. And at that live gathering, we had Rachel and we titled her story Confessions of Perfectionist because it is all about how we as women just really strive to make our life look like it is absolutely perfect. I really loved how she was so vulnerable and how she shared the struggle she had with perfectionism and the anxiety that it brought her because of that. And I loved how she tied it at the end to God's word. So you're going to hear that. Here she is. Before Rachel's story, we wanted to give you a quick reminder of three ways that you can support Storytellers Live. Number one is through Venmo. We are now accepting donations at Storytellers Live podcast. Number two is our Patreon community. You can join for five or $10 a month and you receive extra content a Bible study that goes along with our episodes. And then we actually post extra stories and a story within the story, which is more information about our storyteller. And then lastly, you can purchase Discover Your Story, which is an eight-week Bible study that's appropriate for small groups or personal study for $15 on our website at storytellerslive.org. Thank you so much for supporting Storytellers Live. We could not do this without you. Enjoy Rachel's story. Rachel. Some of you may know me as a superintendent's wife. That's how people know me most of the time. Some of you may know me as a pretty loud exercise instructor, also known as that. And some of you may know me as Sam and Jake's mom. I've got two little boys and they are precious. But let me tell you who I really am. I am a woman that spent 36 years, y'all, being a people-pleasing perfectionist with a really good plan. So when Sarah Beth originally asked me to do Storytellers, it was such an honor, and it is an honor to be with y'all today. I thought of all the stories I could tell that made me look good, because that was the plan. I wasn't going to be real and vulnerable. And when I met with Sarah Beth, we started digging into this part of my life, and we both knew that this is what I was supposed to talk about. So this is not something I love talking about, because it's raw, and it's real, and it doesn't make me look good. But here we are, and I pray the Lord blesses it. Y'all, I'm a planner. I think as women, we're planners. I want to know what's for dinner, but I also want to know like maybe next year, next century, what we're going to do. And kind of specifically, not just like roughly, like I'd like it to be my plan, actually. And I kind of want it tied up in really pretty paper with a red bow because that's my plan. But you know what? That's not what God called us to. God didn't call us to know the plan. And I have come to realize that he doesn't ask me to be the planner. He doesn't ask me to be perfect. Because what I've learned is that that does not produce holiness in my life and definitely doesn't bring God glory. And that's what he's called us to. And through COVID, I learned that. Let me tell you a little bit about my backstory. I'm originally from Memphis, Tennessee, grew up in Germantown, and I grew up in the best family. As we said, my mom's here tonight, and my mom and dad are about to celebrate their 50th wedding anniversary. I mean, goals, right? And so I grew up in what looked like, to me, the perfect scenario. Not to say we didn't have struggles, because we did as a family. But I thought things were perfect. I accepted Christ at an early age, was active at our church in Memphis. I went to a private Christian school called Briarcrest. It was active in cheer and dance. And y'all, I spent every summer at J. Tranch in California. It is where God moves in the life of teenagers. I love that place. I even spent some time one summer. I kind of think back, like, I can't imagine sending my 17-year-old to Brazil. But my parents let me go. And I went. I went with a group. I did not go by myself. 
let me clarify before my mom says something. I went with a group from church and spent some time in an orphanage. And it was really there that the heart of adoption started in my life. I didn't know that about 15 years later, that seed that God planted was going to bloom. But I'm a planner. And as my dad says, any gift taken to an extreme can become your weakness. And gosh, did I see that in my life. So as you can see, I thought my life was pretty perfect. And I wanted other people to think it was pretty perfect too. But looking back at my life and growing up, I could hear the Lord saying, I'm not asking you to be perfect. See, I saw perfection or what I thought it was. Since having kids and talking to my mom, I think I just thought she was superwoman because she has since said, girl, I had struggles and anxiety and fears just like you do. I just thought that that was how life was. So I ended up going to Auburn. Some of my sorority sisters are in this crowd. (laughs) I went to Auburn and like all good Christian Southern girls, I had a plan, right? And it was going to be my plan. I was going to graduate in elementary education and I was going to get engaged my senior year of college because I wanted a candlelight. Anybody? You know, at one point, my husband said, did y'all like sing a song or something? I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, you did. He's like, will you sing it? I was like, nope. One, because it's embarrassing. (laughs) And two, no. But the thing is, that didn't happen for me in Auburn. God had better plans. God wasn't calling me to be the planner of my life. And he certainly wasn't calling it to be perfect, at least not in my eyes. So I did graduate in elementary education and started teaching in Auburn. And after teaching for a year in Auburn, I met Todd through a mutual friend named Candy Trailer, who will forever be someone I get to call by name as one of my sweetest angels because God used her to introduce me to Todd. Todd, who was in the board office of the school system I worked in, who is 15 years older, just in case anyone really wondered, <laughs> he is 15 years older, 14 sometimes, so we kind of go with that, just sounds better, 15 years older. And y'all, he seemed way too calm for this loud people person Enneagram 7. If you're into Enneagrams, you know, a 7s were the people, people. We want everybody around at all times. And that was me. And it still is. So Todd didn't seem like my plan. But guess what? I'm so thankful that God's plan was better. Y'all, God blessed me with a man that lets me cry, lets me laugh, lets me go be with my friends. And y'all, every single morning, he brings me coffee in bed, sits beside me, holds my hand and prays for our family. Praise Jesus that my plan was not right. God wasn't calling me to my plan. He was calling me to his. So in what I thought was a fairy tale wedding, we got married in Memphis. 11 months to the date to our first date. If you know, you know. So we got married in Memphis and lived in Auburn. I was teaching school because remember that was that was my plan. And let's be real, looking back, I was probably a really terrible teacher, but that was what I wanted to do. And Todd was the principal at Auburn High School. And y'all from the outside, things probably looked perfect. I wanted them to look perfect. So we went to all the things. We saw all the people. I wanted our life to look perfect. Y'all, can I be real? Every day I struggled with the anxiety of being the perfect wife, being the perfect educator, and honestly, probably the perfect Christian. But it wasn't because I wanted to please the Lord. It was because I wanted people to think I was perfect. And God kept telling me, Rachel, my plan is not for you to be perfect. My plan is for you to bring me glory and bring others to Christ. But I didn't see it that way. I was exhausted. Okay, my plan. We're married. We're living in Auburn, loving life, at least pretending to. So what's my next step? You know, I'm a good Southern Christian girl. I wanted babies. I wanted 2.5 babies. Okay, let's be real. I don't really know what that means, but that's what everybody says they want. So that's what I wanted. I wanted 2.5 babies. I wanted them roughly two years apart. I wanted a boy and a girl. 
I wanted to live in a house with a white picket fence. And I wanted my kids to wear color-coordinated clothing to First Baptist Opelika. And I wanted to take pictures, too. Post them on social media about how perfect our life was. God, his plan's better. Praise Jesus. So we ended up trying to have children and trying and trying. And it was getting exhausting because we weren't having children. You see, when I was younger, I was diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome. So they, the people that knew what they were talking about, said, you may have trouble conceiving. But that wasn't me. That wasn't my plan. God loved me too much for that, right? I was too good of a Christian and my life looked too perfect to really struggle with having children. Y'all, for the next three years, which seems like a blip on the radar to women that have struggled for decades, but for three years, we spent every dollar, every tear, and every hour trying to have a baby. We ended up at the art program right here in Brookwood, where they told us, we're probably not going to get pregnant. But during that time, the desire for adoption resurfaced in my heart. The desire for when I was in high school, it resurfaced in my heart. But I shoved it down, because here's the deal. That's not my plan. And adoption doesn't come in gold paper with a red bow. And that wouldn't look perfect because there's potential that my child couldn't look like me. And I couldn't pick the birth mother. So many scenarios that I wasn't willing to fight. So I shoved it down. And as I drove to Birmingham and Montgomery from Auburn, I started to get really, really bitter. You see, God continued to whisper that my plan is not for perfection. My plan is to make you holy, to bring me glory and to bring other people to Christ from your story. I didn't feel it, y'all. I felt really, really alone. And I felt really lonely, felt really forgotten. And I was becoming very bitter. You see, we got pregnant on the first infertility treatment. Oh, that was just a blip on the radar, just a test. We got it. But as quickly as we celebrated, we miscarried. And things did not go to plan after that. Nothing seemed like it was going to work. But y'all, while I was in the midst of infertility, really mad at God, getting really mad at my husband, I read a quote that said, in the waiting, you're not doing nothing. You're doing the most important something there is. You're allowing God to grow your soul. You see, during those years, God wasn't just growing my soul. He was stripping away the pride I had in my heart because deep down I knew that pride could not be in the center of my heart and have an intimate relationship with the Lord. But the intimate relationship with the Lord was not what was important at the time. It was really babies. So in the midst of the infertility journey, as I was taking all forms of hormones, becoming all forms of fat, and if you've done infertility, you know that feeling, and becoming all forms of bitter, I decided to talk to Todd about adoption because I had just finally given up hope that my way was going to work. So as you would imagine, (laughs) I said, Todd, let's adopt. He said, great. Okay, we're done. End of discussion. We adopted and all was great. (laughs) I kind of wish that's how it worked. I talked to Todd and I said, Todd, I really want you to pray about adoption. And his response wasn't what I expected. He said, that's not where my heart is. And I don't think that's where we're going to go as a family. In the sweetest way I could muster, probably as Proverbs 31 as I'm about to sound, I looked at him and I said, I didn't ask. I just need you to pray. (laughs) Won't be the last time I talk to him like that either is the problem. So for the next really long, quiet year, we didn't talk about adoption again. I begged God to change Todd's heart because I knew adoption was what I wanted. So I was begging God to change Todd's heart. In that process, Art at Brookwood told us that insurance had quit paying for our infertility treatments. We had maxed out and that we were going to need to choose between IVF and adoption. And if you've been there, you know, they're equally as expensive. So we began the journey of praying over that. About that same time, I went home to Memphis 
and I was putting it all together. I looked perfect. I felt like I was acting perfect. See, I'm the middle of three girls. (laughs) So I'm the people pleaser. And so when I go home, I want to act perfect. I want everybody to be happy. And I want our world to seem perfect. Y'all, these are my people. They know what I'm going through. And as vivid as I can even remember, I'm sitting at a red light at a railroad track in Germantown, Tennessee on Poplar Pike. And I hadn't even really told my mom this story until this weekend. In the car with my mom, and as only moms can do, she looked at me and she said, with so much love in her eyes, she said, you have to quit. Rachel, this is not you. And you're becoming a woman you don't want to be. Y'all, I started sobbing as I'm about to do now (laughs) because God used her to affirm me that my plan is not going to be perfect and I don't have to be perfect. So I looked at her and sobbed and I haven't told her thank you for that because I wasn't looking for my mom's affirmation. I probably was deep down, but God really just used her to say stop and let me be in control. So almost as soon as I release the stronghold of the desire to do things my way, because I'm a planner and I need it perfect. I went back to Auburn and Todd and I were eating lunch one day and almost to the year to the date that I had brought up adoption. Todd looked at me over lunch one afternoon and said, out of the blue, I'm ready to adopt. You see, at the time I thought, well, praise Jesus. He changed your mind. I was right. But what I've learned, y'all, yes, God changed Todd's heart, but he was changing my spirit. That's what he was waiting on. I had to release the stronghold of doing it my way. So y'all, we started adoption. I wish I could say adoption's easy. And if you've been there, you know, adoption's hard. We signed on with Lifeline in Birmingham right here, and they are a fantastic company. But we also told our friends and our pastors and my good friend, who was my gynecologist in Auburn, Carrie Hensterling. I call her by name because she is an angel and she needs all honor in the story. So my conversation with Carrie went something like this. I said, hey, Carrie. We had walked the infertility journey together. I said, hey, Carrie, if you ever deliver a baby who needs a home, just call me. I'll take them. No questions asked. And I hung up the phone and that was the end. So we continued on the adoption process with Lifeline. And y'all, as I mentioned, Todd's 15 years older. We get asked more than not if he's my dad, which is real fun. (laughs) I think it's hilarious. And so we didn't look like the perfect couple. In an adoption, the birth mothers choose you based on pictures. You don't get to sit in front of them, plead your case, and tell them how wonderfully perfect God made you. And so we kept getting passed over. And I don't like failure, y'all. And adoption felt like a failure on all fronts. I was thankful that I wasn't taking hormones and taking shots every, every day. Funny story about taking shots. The doctor handed me shots. And until infertility, y'all, I wouldn't even get a shot for a sinus infection. And the doctor said, you're going to take a shot every 12 hours. And we're going to put it in the fattest part of your body. So we'll put yours in your stomach. Thanks. I was already feeling bad about myself. And here we are. So praise the Lord. I was not doing that anymore. But we were on the road to adoption and it was hard and we were getting passed up. And I felt like a failure. And I was really getting angry at the Lord. Because not only had this not been my original plan, now I was failing at the second plan. In the midst of all that, though, the Lord shook up our family. And Todd's great work and hard work was seen, and he accepted the job as superintendent of Sylacauga City Schools. So we started our journey to Sylacauga. It was not where I wanted to go. I'll be honest. I wanted to stay in Auburn. It was home. We had bought a house we thought we were going to live in forever, and my people were there. But that's where the Lord had called us. 
So in the midst of trying to adopt, we packed up our things and went to Sylacauga. But we were leaving home, the place I wanted to raise 2.5 children in their color-coordinated clothing with my white picket fence. We were leaving home to go to a town that I couldn't even spell, where I knew no one, and I had no babies. Life didn't seem perfect, and I was mad. But let me tell you how faithful God is. Y'all, we moved to Sylacauga, which I have learned to spell, and the welcome wagons were there at my doorstep. Small town people, they welcome you. And they were there, and they welcomed me. But Satan was also at my doorstep because he was whispering in my heart the minute we moved into that to that sweet town. Look, these people don't know you and they're going to find out you're not perfect. So you better get your stuff together because people are going to know your husband and you better look like you're happy and that nothing's wrong because they expect you to be perfect. So I was lonely and I was bitter and I was mad at my husband because he had taken me to a town. I couldn't spell where I knew no one, but I looked good on the outside. And that's all that mattered. So y'all, fast forward to October. October 1st, 2013. We're in Sylacauga and I'm still mad at Todd because the stronghold in my heart was that this was not where I wanted to be. I was going back to Auburn probably more frequently than I needed to admit to visit friends. And on October 1st, y'all, I went to Auburn to visit some sweet friends, ones here today, to eat lunch. And they were sweet and receptive. But rightfully so, their life had moved on because I had moved. And I ate lunch with them at Niffers and Opelika. If you've been there, you know, on the train tracks. And we had a great time and I got in the car and I called Todd and I started sobbing. You see, I hadn't been the best wife. I think at one point, the first couple of weeks I'd been in Sylacauga, I looked at him and said, you can stay, I'm not. And I kind of was serious. <laughs> and he said, we're going to do this together. And I said, mm, maybe not. And he was like, we, we are. And I think he thought I was mad about adoption. But deep down, I was just mad. I was just mad at God. I was mad at him. I was mad. I was still in Sylacauga, married to Todd. (laughs) And I had gone back that day on October 1st, but I called him after lunch and I said, with sobbing tears, I have no clue why I was here today. My sweet friends love me, but I don't feel at home. Auburn's not home anymore, but neither is Sylacauga. I don't have a home. And he said, come home. You do. That was October 1st. Fast forward just two days, October 3rd, 2013, y'all. And I'm sitting in the Piggly Wiggly parking lot in Sylacauga. (laughs) I had never been in a Piggly Wiggly before moving to Sylacauga because we had Kroger's in Memphis and Auburn. And if you've moved to a new city, you know, grocery stores are kind of a big deal. It's not what's in grocery stores, but it's who's not in the grocery store. You don't know anybody. And grocery stores are where everybody goes (laughs) or they did before COVID. And so I was just sitting in the Piggly Wiggly parking lot, getting up the energy to just go inside. And my phone rang and the conversation went like this. Hey, Rachel, it's Carrie Hensterling from Auburn. I know this is kind of out of the blue and I'm not even sure if you've adopted a baby yet, but I delivered a baby two days ago on October 1st at lunchtime in Auburn. And the birth mom wants to know if I know anybody that wants this baby before she goes through an agency. Y'all, I had been in town. The Lord had allowed me in his kindness to get as close as I could to my sweet Sam just to be there. And I didn't even know it at the time. So I was questioning the Lord. And he was as patient as could be, all the while blessing me. So that day, I picked Todd up from his very new job as superintendent in Sylacauga. I said, get in the car. We're getting a baby. (laughs) I truly think those were my words. That's not an exaggeration. And we drove to Auburn. We didn't have a crib. We didn't have a diaper. We didn't have a piece of clothing. And we didn't even know if this baby was a boy or a girl. But y'all... That's that night. We saw all of God's grace and mercy in our Sam Freeman's face. 
We met him on October 3rd, and on October 4th, he was in our house forever. Y'all, there's so many God parts to his story, and he knows he's adopted. That's not a secret. And I'm very sorry if he asks your children if they're adopted too, because it's just a thing we talk about. (laughs) In Bible club last year, I was leading the kindergarten boys, and we were trying to get to know each other. Raise your hand if you have a dog. Raise your hand if you have a sibling. Sam Freeman, this is how normal it is. In our group of kindergarten boys said, raise your hand if you're adopted. And everybody's looking around like, oh, no. Nobody raised hand. He said, well, I am and so is my dog. You're right, buddy, you are. He knows he's adopted. But you know what's more important? He also knows that there are people outside the four walls of our home that love him more than life itself. So much so that they would give him a life with a family that could take care of him. So that day, I knew that it wasn't that we adopted because I couldn't get pregnant. I knew I couldn't get pregnant because our first child was coming through adoption. And praise Jesus that his story is perfect because that wasn't my plan. And I'm thankful that it was God's. Y'all, so I should have been completely content, right? I mean, I had a baby. But if you remember back, I needed the 2.5 babies and I had my boy. So I wanted children and I knew I couldn't get pregnant again. So I approached the adoption conversation with Todd again. The first one didn't go as planned, and the second one wasn't any better. See, Todd was completely content with our one child. Contentment, what a place to be in life, y'all. And he was content with our little family, but I wasn't because I still had a plan. So after (laughs) what I wish I could say was really sweet words and some prayer, but it was probably more like the non-31 Proverbs woman nagging, we signed on with another adoption agency. We met them. And we put down a very hefty, non-refundable deposit and started the adoption process again. All the while, Todd was saying, I don't feel that this is right, but we're going to do it. That made me feel real good. But that same week, I was on a walk with my best friend. See, I'd made friends in Silicaga at that point because I'd given up the stronghold that Silicaga wasn't home. And I had made friends for a lifetime. And my best friend who's here today drove from Silicaga because that's her. We were on a walk. I'm walking my little 12-month-old, and we're on a walk, and I'm talking to her about how tired I am and how bad I feel. I bet you know where this is going. And she looks at me, and I don't know if it was supernatural revelation from the Lord, or I just looked fat, but she looked at me (laughs) in all sincerity. She said, you're pregnant. And as only a best friend can do, I looked at her and I said, shut up. You see, I was offended because four doctors that know what they're talking about had said, you will never have children. I said, Mandy... I have a sinus infection. She said, well, that's fine. Buy Sudafed, but also buy a pregnancy test, please. So we, the two of us, like weirdos, (laughs) with my child with no shoes on and a stroller, walked through Walgreens and bought a pregnancy test. Y'all, I was eight weeks pregnant. And in the very, very hot July summer of 2015, I gave birth to nine pounds of cheeks and sass that we named Jacob Neil Freeman. Y'all, he broke the mold when he was born, and he's never been dull since. He's the second born, and he completes our family. And praise Jesus that his plan is perfect, because that wasn't my plan. So we also donated a very hefty, non-refundable deposit to an adoption agency, because the check had cleared the day before. (sighs) So (sighs) our life continued. But y'all, the anxiety of having two under two was evident. The anxiety of wanting to lose baby weight quickly. It was evident. The desire for attention, however I could get it, it was evident. I needed people to know that I lost my baby weight 
and that I was handling two under two with grace and ease. I wanted people to say, look how perfect the Freeman family is. Talk about pride. Gosh, it was there. But can I be honest, y'all? All the while, Todd and I were struggling. You see, Jake had colic and they say it lasts for three months. I kind of claim it lasts for three years. But for the first six months of Jake's life, he didn't sleep. And I was suffering with what I now know is postpartum depression. But here's the thing. I didn't have depression. I didn't have anxiety. I would not have had that. That is for people who didn't take care of themselves. That is for people without a support system. That's for those people. Y'all, you name it, Satan told me and I believed every lie he threw at me. Y'all, I needed help, but I couldn't admit it. What would that mean? Would it mean that people knew the superintendent's wife wasn't perfect? Would it mean that I actually wasn't perfect? Y'all, I would have rather suffered in silence than let God be the redeemer of my story. I would have rather hung so desperately to my pride than just said, I need help. I can't do this my way. Y'all, in the, in the midst of all of that, in the spring of 2018, Todd's really hard work and dedication to his job was noticed. And he accepted the job as superintendent in Vestavia City Schools. Y'all, when we left Auburn, as I have told you, it was both of our dreams and desires to go back home to Auburn. But the Lord in his gentle kindness had closed those doors in our hearts throughout our stay in Sylacauga. So we knew that wasn't where we were going to go. So we started our venture to Vestavia. But because I left Auburn in a huff, (laughs) why wouldn't I continue that trend? I mean, let's just stick with what we know. And so as vivid as I can remember it, I sobbed as I pulled out of my driveway in Sylacauga. You see, the place I had kicked and screamed and threatened divorce over going to was home. Y'all, my babies had come home there. I had made friends for a lifetime there. And the Lord had taught me that love grows best in small spaces right there in Pleasant Ridge in Sylacauga, Alabama. So because Vestavia also wasn't my plan, it wasn't happening. Y'all, the Lord has been so kind and patient with my temper tantrum soul. Because Vestavia, as I sit here tonight, you're home. You have been home since we walked in the doors and there's nowhere else in the world we want to be. But I remember (laughs) being in a reception for Todd right when we moved here, trying to look perfect because Satan was whispering in my ear all over again that I needed to be perfect. So we were standing in a reception at the library, talking to people, very sweet people, by the way, if you were at that reception. I need to just tell you, you were very kind to this temper tantrum soul. And I remember a woman saying to me, And I'm sure she meant it as sweetly as she said it. She said, bet you're really nervous to live in a big city like this after only living in a small town and kind of smirked. If you know me, you know that what almost came out of my mouth (laughs) was, girl, back up. I'm from Memphis. (laughs) I am pretty sure Todd was probably clenching his teeth. (laughs) But instead, I smiled and I said, we are so excited for what the Lord has in store for us. But y'all. Deep down, all I wanted to say was I'm scared to death that somebody's going to know I'm not perfect, that they're going to see through the facade that we're always good and we're always happy and somebody's really going to know Rachel and they're not going to like her. So one of the greatest blessings of moving to Vestavia is that my college roommate from Auburn lives here, Kira Aaron, and her family live in Vestavia. And so Kira, in her motherly nature she has had since college, invited me to meet friends of hers that have kids my boys' ages. 
So we were at the Liberty Park splash pad one afternoon, and we were discussing the loneliness of moving to a new town. She had transplanted here a couple years before me, and she said something I'll never forget, and I want you to hear it. She said, Rachel, I want you to hear something. You don't miss knowing people. You miss being known. You don't miss knowing people. You miss being known. Y'all, in that moment, I thought, no, 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 I don't want to be known. I don't want to be known because that will mean people will know I'm not perfect. They'll know my marriage isn't perfect. They'll know my kids aren't perfect. They will know my thoughts aren't perfect. I don't want people to know me. But in that moment, the creator of the universe whispered in my heart, but I know you. I know your imperfect soul. I know your flaws and I died on the cross for you. It was like he was speaking out loud. He said, you go to a grocery store and don't know anybody and you go to events solely because your last name is Freeman and you're lonely, but I love you and I know you and you don't have to be perfect because I died on the cross for you anyway. Kira doesn't know that all that happened in my brain while she was just trying to be a good friend, but it changed the way I saw life because life was about to take a turn for every one of us in the name of COVID, the greatest and worst year of our life. You see, in the last years, I had gotten a job as a fitness instructor at the YMCA. So I've loved all my jobs, but you tell me I can work out. I can use my creativity. I can make friends. You can give me a microphone and a stage and you're going to pay me? Y'all, the Enneagram 7 in me is made for this. I wake up so excited to go to work every day. Some people think I might be on drugs. I have to remind people often I don't drink a lot of caffeine because I love my job. God just made it for me. Y'all want to know what my husband was made for? A pandemic. Y'all, the man was so content in our house all day, every day. Just us. Y'all. He's a planner too. And if you have children in Vestavia City Schools, you've seen some of the plans. What you haven't seen though are the 3 a.m. plans that he had just in case those plans didn't work because that's what he's made for. And he was content. Remember that word? The thing I have not been. And it's a thing I strive for. But he's been content. And he was content. But COVID changed me. I was a nervous wreck. I was a teacher before I had children. And the idea of virtual learning scared me as much as it did you. And he heard about it. (laughs) So I promise you, things you thought and said, I did too. (laughs) You were not alone. Y'all, there were so many blessings looking back on those months. But let me be real. Y'all, there wasn't a day I woke up and said, praise Jesus, I'm at home again with my kids and my husband. The blessing was that my next door neighbor who is here tonight, (laughs) y'all, we were each other's sanity. We stood in the driveway most days starting at noon, (laughs) just to entertain each other. (laughs) Y'all, the Lord was still peeling away my pride. He was reminding me that I was imperfect and he was humbling me before his throne. Every single day in my driveway while my my kids shot basketballs, every day that was happening. Because you see, I wanted the social media to portray that I was the best COVID mom. Look at my crafts and look how happy we are. And I truly wanted my kids to really remember the good times. But y'all, every night I got in the bed and I wanted to cry because this wasn't my plan. And let's be real, on anyone's 2019 bingo card, COVID wasn't in the center square. But y'all, as life started to open slowly, the YMCA opened slowly, and I begged for every class that I could teach again. I don't care if I was certified for it. Just let me teach. Because y'all, I needed the affirmation that I was good at something. Y'all, I also needed the affirmation that people just liked me. 
So I begged for classes. But what else opened slowly was our church. We go to Shades Mountain Baptist Church, and I think it has done a fantastic job at reopening during the pandemic. But let me tell you something, and I might step on toes. Where does my pride, insecurity, anxiety come out the most? The church. Y'all not talking about the four walls of Shades Mountain Baptist Church. I'm talking about a body of believers gathered together in the name of the Lord. Because I am a firm believer in a community of believers being there for each other. But I also am a believer that we get so entrenched in our holy huddle that we forget to be salt and light. And Satan told me that God only allows the perfect in the holy huddle. That was the lie I was believing. But I have the most fantastic group of believers in my life. I have Sunday school girls that love me more than anything. I have girls from work that will point me to Jesus in a heartbeat. And I have family members that love me that are all believers. So as our Sunday school class started Bible study back up again, we couldn't have it at the church. Guess what this Enneagram 7 did? She volunteered her house every week for lots of weeks, right? Some of the girls are here. So every Thursday night, girls would come over to my house to worship the Lord in my den. But every Thursday night, anxiety crept up in my heart. And I am a firm believer now that it was from Satan. But anxiety crept up in my heart that if there were crumbs on my counter or dirt on my floor or my house smelled like chicken nuggets, they wouldn't like me. And they would soon realize that I wasn't perfect. So I was anxious every Thursday night. And I started to refuse to let Todd cook dinner for my kids on Thursday night. Okay, let's go back over that one. My husband (laughs) was cooking dinner for my children and I was mad. Anxiety, it's a cool thing. Y'all, I was so mad that chicken nuggets would make my friends not like me. Satan was lying to my heart and I was believing it. So one night... In an anxiety-ridden tantrum, Todd and I got in a fight right before girls were about to come over to my house to worship the Lord. I say fight really loosely because if you have ever talked to my husband or heard his videos, that is him. And he is as even as they come. So it was me mad at him over chicken nuggets and crumbs on my counter. And in, in, in this tantrum, I picked up the nearest thing I could find and threw it at his head. Praise the Lord. It was a dish towel. But I'm pretty certain that had it been a plate, that would have gotten thrown at his head too. And with love and grace and probably a little fear, he looked at me and said, what is wrong with you? You see, all I could say was in the most sincere way, I said, with tears in my eyes, I don't know, but promise me you still love me. Because you see, Todd had seen my imperfections and I was scared to death that he was going to not love me. I was scared to be seen for who I am, even to my husband. I was scared to be vulnerable and raw to a man that had seen me give birth to a child. That night, Bible study was a complete wash. I have no clue what we talked about, but I remember sitting on my own couch thinking there has to be more to life than the anxiety and fear of someone realizing I'm not perfect. The next day, Todd said, let's go on a date. You see, quality time and date nights are a big deal for us. So I thought, great. He's going to apologize for making sandwiches. (laughs) Well, in what might be our very last date night to Village Tavern ever, I sat down and all I remember is ordering a glass of wine and sobbing for hours. You see, we sat down and Todd said, Rachel, something's wrong and we've got to figure out what it is. If it's me, I promise to make it right and get help, but we've got to make it right. What is wrong? Y'all in that moment, I looked at the man I had promised to love forever who knew me better than anyone in the world. 
And for the first time in 36 years, I finally said, I don't know what's wrong, but I'm really, really tired of pretending. I just need help. So that night after coming home from what will probably be our last village tavern date, if you see us there again, (laughs) just turn the other way. (sighs) I texted one of my closest friends, Sarah Kent, who's in the ministry. And I said, Sarah, I need your help. I just need a counselor. See, it was the first time I admitted that I needed help. And her response was exactly what I needed. She said, and I quote, I'm an advocate for everything counseling. Let me send you some names of some women, but I need to know you're okay. You see, she didn't judge me. She didn't question my sanity. Y'all, she jumped into the mess of my life. And for the next very well, even now, she's there. She's in the stillness. She's in the checking on me. And everyone needs friends in your life who jump into your mess and say, we're going to get it right. But let me just sit here while you wrestle with Satan. Because y'all, that's what I've been doing for 36 years. I had allowed Satan's lies that people would only like the perfect people-pleasing Rachel. I believed the lies that I wasn't good enough the way the Lord made me. I had believed the lies that I had to have all of my crap together to come before my friends or my spouse or even the Lord. So if you have friends who you have to have your crap together for, they're not your friends. The minute I admitted I needed help, I found my friends. Y'all, they're the people that love me despite the crumbs on my counter and the chicken nugget smell in my kitchen. They're the friends that love me despite (laughs) my kids' terribly shaved heads and mismatched clothing at all times. That's current. They're my across-the-street neighbors that say, hey, send me your kids while you go to counseling. Or my girls at work that say, hey, I had counseling today too. Let's compare notes. They're those people that say, let's wrestle with Satan together because you're enough. And I have those girls, but it took me saying, I need help to get those people. So in typical Rachel fashion, I admitted I needed help, (laughs) but it was going to be on my terms. See, Sarah had sent me the name of a couple people, but I am ADD as you can tell. And I want to touch, feel, and see. And so Sarah said, I really want you to call one lady and her name's Becky, but she's only doing Zoom counseling. Nope. Moving on. That's not my plan. And so in God funny, I called all the other women she had given me and no one was available. So in Sarah's sweet, kind way, she said, can I remind you about Becky? I think it's time you call her. So the day I met my counselor, Becky, my world changed for the better. You see, I was nervous, but I had promised Todd and Sarah and my family and Mandy that I would be 100% myself. And so in typical Rachel, people-pleasing perfection, I showered, got dressed, put on makeup and waited for my Zoom counseling. Because girlfriend's got to look perfect to talk about being imperfect, right? I mean, baby steps, y'all, baby steps. The minute I got on my call with Becky, she said, just tell me why you want to be in counseling. I lost it. Sitting on my bed, facing a computer, holding a cup of coffee. I kicked my whole family out of the house and I was by myself with her. The years of feeling like I had to be perfect, the years of lies, the years of anxiety in my heart came out. That makeup I had put on was gone. I talked about being a perfectionist. We talked about people pleasing. Y'all, one thing she said will stick with me forever. And it is one of the reasons I will stay in counseling forever. She said, Rachel, you're a people pleasing perfectionist. Yeah, I knew that part. She said, but that's not what I want you to hear. She said, you have two precious boys. Do you want your boys growing up feeling they have to be perfect? No, heavens no, I said. And she looked at me with sweet eyes and said, You fix you now, or they will have to fix you later. What? Let me say that again, just in case you need to hear it. If you don't want your children to grow up feeling like they have to be perfect, 
or fill in the blank. You fix it now or they'll have to fix it later. I continue counseling to this day. It's the hardest and greatest hours I have in my life. I continued every single week for months. And now I just see Becky monthly, but I crave that time. Y'all, she lets me laugh, even though she does say that's a coping mechanism and I can't laugh at the wrong times. She lets me cry and she actually wants me to cry. She lets me cuss all I want. And then she points me straight back to Jesus. Y'all, she she calls me out on my, my perfectionism, my pride, my anxiety and my insecurities. And if I'm honest, Todd knows when I hadn't been in a while and he'll remind me, hey, when's your next counseling appointment? <laughs> It's a really, really sweet way of being like, maybe let's check the calendar and your attitude. But you see, it was admitting I needed help. It was me actually seeking out help, being real and vulnerable and honest with somebody and putting in work because y'all, it's not easy. And to this day, I'm a people-pleasing perfectionist with anxiety, but I at least know it and I work on it. It has changed the way I'm a mother. It has changed the way I am a wife. It has changed the way I'm a friend, a sister, and a daughter. And it's changed my life. I have tons of Beckyisms, as I call them. But through the process, I have found that the Lord didn't call me to be perfect because only He is perfect. He calls me to be present. My plan doesn't have to be perfect because His plan, praise the Lord, is perfect. Also realizing that how much God loves me helps me realize that I'm not bringing glory to God by pretending to be somebody I'm not. My favorite verse in the whole Bible is 2 Corinthians twelve nine. My grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in your weakness. You see, I was believing a lie that I had to show everybody the perfect parts in the shiny paper and red bow for them to like me. I was only lovable for the perfect parts. The minute I said I needed help and let my imperfection shine through, that's when I was real, and that's when God was glorified. As Becky tells me, without cracks in your life, there is no stained glass. My weakness is where where God's light shines through and I'm most glorified and I'm learning that every day. In closing, I want to tell you a story quickly. There's a story of a woman who carries water from a well to her house in two clay jars. One jar is perfectly shaped with no cracks. The other one's older and has cracks. And as she makes the path every day from the well to her house, the jar with cracks would leak water onto the road. And day after day, that water trail started to produce flowers. You see, the trail of water left by the cracks is what produced the prettiness. The perfectly sealed jar was pretty to look at, but the broken jar was what produced the flowers. My prayer in this ending is that my broken pieces will produce humility and joy and flowers for my kids and for my friends and my family. I pray that my kids walk a trail of my life, picking the flowers of joy I have left from them, for them from my pots that are cracked, instead of just following the dirt path of my perfectly carved jars. If you are listening and you're a woman, you probably can relate to something in this story. Mm -hmm. I'm so thankful to how vulnerable she was for her thoughts, mm-hmm. you know, we all have, we may not have all of those thoughts. We may not struggle with exactly what Rachel describes, but guaranteed somewhere in your life, I know in my life, there has been a thought like that. Mm-hmm. And I just, I kind of sat listening to her story when she was sharing with mouth open of thank you so much for saying what we all need to hear. <laughs> but one thing that she said after the fact that I almost raised my hand and said, 
hey, will you tell us what you said when she was when we were talking through her story? Sarah Beth on our team coached her, and she used the phrase that perfectionism is anxiety in a fur coat. Mm-hmm. And that I was like, I want that to be a social media thing. <laughs> I want that on a t-shirt. <laughs> um, because it's so true. She's talking about perfectionism over and over and over. But the underlying thing to that is anxiety. Absolutely. And, and I sat there listening to Rachel at the live event thinking what you're saying she is every woman mm-hmm. because no one would ever describe me as a perfectionist, right. but the plan mm-hmm. that I have, I've mm-hmm. talked about it before that picture that you kind of have for your family or your children or what your marriage mm-hmm. will be like. We, we kind of idolize that plan. And so it does create anxiety. I love that it all came to a head over chicken finger crumbs on the counter <laughs> because I can't relate to that personally because I don't see crumbs on counters, but I, there is someone in my life that could relate to that. <laughs> but I, I, I thought, I, I just, I loved her realness. Well, you're talking about the plan that you have. Mine's really the picture that I want to create. Yes. You know? And so that's what, you know, when she was talking about the crumbs, as you were referring to, I was like, here's the thing. We as women, when you go to somebody's house and they have some crumbs, aren't you like, I'm so glad oh, she has so, crumbs yes. on her counter. Oh, absolutely. I need to remind myself that yeah. instead in trying to clean my house spotless, you know, before I have people over. But I did like how she tied, of course, everything into scripture, like mm-hmm. I said, at the beginning of the story of talking about, you know, how Paul himself said, you know, that that God's power is made perfect in weakness. And, you know, if you back up a few verses before that was in um, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And if you go to chapter 11, verse 30 of that same book, he says, you know, if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast about my weaknesses. Mm-hmm. And I wish that we as women could just, that needs to be on my mirror along with some <laughs> other things of just, you know, just boast about your weaknesses, Katie, because that's really where God's power is able to be shown through you. Mm-hmm. And it's really, you really connect with people over your weakness. Absolutely. Being your, how 100%. perfect you are. And that's the premise of storytellers. Yes. That's how it all begins. Yes, that's right. Because now you see her around town or we will. And <laughs> you, you know, these things, yeah. you know, you don't see her as, the wife of someone well-known, you see her as one of us Mm -hmm. that has equal struggles that you can say, oh my word. Rachel who throws a dish towel at her husband (laughs) because of the chicken fingers. And we all feel better because we've all been That's right. Absolutely. So thank you, Rachel, so much for sharing. And as always, we are so thankful when you share our stories. And so we would just ask you today to either share this on social media, text it to a friend. This story is so relatable to everyone. Pass it along. And help us get the word out about Storytellers Live. You can find us on all the social media places on Instagram and Facebook at Storytellers Live Podcast. You can check out our website and find all of our podcasts, which you can now search for by name, by topic at StorytellersLive.org. Have a great week and we will talk to you next week. Bye.